Scott Allen is someone we think is brilliant. He led Hydroflask, a brand most of us know who revolutionized what a water bottle can do during a time of major unknowns and growth, resulting in their sale to Helen of Troy for a cool 210 mil. Scott took a brief break from startup world and is now back at it again as interim CEO of Puffin Drinkware. One of the reasons we love to talk to Scott is that he doesn't suffer fools or boring questions. He tells it how he sees it. He's honest about how growth happens and what it takes to do it. And he gives great advice freely from years of wisdom and experience. This week, we chat with Scott about a variety of topics, including building company culture for real, taking risks, how to take or not take advice, and what he's excited about in the work world right now and what worries him. Let's get to it with Scott Allen. Imagine if work was actually good for people, not just for a few people, but for everyone in every job. Sadly, work today is often not only not good, but is actually terrible for the human beings who work there. We can do better. On this podcast, my friend and colleague, May Ratz and I, Mo Carrot, with our amazing guests, bring you both the hard questions and the real solutions to reimagining and resetting every workplace from the tiny mom and pop to the mega company to be good for people. When we thrive at work instead of just survive, everyone wins. Let's take a look at what it takes to make work human. Okay, Scott Allen, this is the rumor that I heard is that you had big plans in February. Back in time, right, to February of 2020, and I had the best planned retirement activities lined up. So my, my vision of retirement was going to be some board service because we had some great advisory board members that worked for me at Hydroflies. I thought, what a great way to give back and add value. I was going to travel quite a bit. So we had plans to go to New Zealand. We had plans to go to lots of places. And I was going to do all this great outdoor recreation because we live here in Central Oregon. So it could be spring pass and then right to mountain bike season. So obviously it was not a transition to those things. It was a transition to quarantine. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, horrible. And when you just finish working and being busy, you can't not be busy. So before I knew it, I'm, I did pick up some board service. I was on seven different boards. I was not getting outside and I was not traveling. So that that was fine. And then... Three years later, remote board service, there's some great parts to it, but you just miss the people component. You miss being with people and all that. And so I was approached by some investors that were going to fund another company here in Bend, Oregon called Puffin Drinkware, which make these great little puffy jackets and vests and robes and shirts that you put on your beer can or beverage of choice. So you get all this kind of personality or they call it drinkware. And it was probably the right amount of time. It was like three three years had gone by and I was ready to be busy again, and especially for a six, seven month type term. So that was the, the basis of that failing at retirement and coming back to work. <laughs> I think that's so interesting though. You said so much there. That's so interesting. One is that when you retire, even though you had really good plans. And I remember talking to you about that and you were ready, like you have your head around it, but it's hard to stop, isn't it? It's hard to stop. Even if there hadn't been COVID-19 moving you back to your living room instead of all this great adventuring, it's still quite a change from what I hear. I'm not there yet, but I hear from other clients and colleagues that are there that it really is a bit of a, a mindset shift around, I've been the CEO, I've been busy, I've started companies, I'm on a roll. And then now I'm not doing that. Tell us a little bit about that impact and like what that was like for you and maybe even made worse by the COVID-19 global pandemic. Yeah, it's such a great question. It's really about purpose, isn't it? It's like, where do you get your energy and how do you give back? And there's a great time to just decompress and unplug and think about you and just take a moment, but you don't need that many it doesn't have to be a long moment. I'm looking for something to do. I remember my wife said, okay, you said you were going to be on four different boards. And isn't that five? And isn't this one going to be six? Yeah, but this is so cool. Look at this. Look at that. 
So yeah, I went right past all the kind of warnings. I made her a promise. Don't let me sign up for too much. Of course, I probably did. But it was great to be working on things. Some were volunteer boards. So like Camber, you had Tiffany Smith on a couple episodes ago. Yeah. Really working on DEI workplace tools. So how do we make the outdoor and active industry a better industry going forward? So some of it's service. Some of it's just working with younger entrepreneurs that are navigating a pandemic, their first crisis when they're at the helm of a company. And it's not like we had experience navigating pandemics, but market crashes and other things that we've seen in the past. How do we lead through tough times and working with leaders to help them do that to, to the best of our collective ability on board. So it's been great. I love the board service, but there's nothing like being on the team, working. There's nothing like those sleepless nights and the stomach acid, all that kind of stuff you get when you're actually in the operating role with the team, trying to figure out how to do all the stuff you just told the board you'd be doing. That's just a different level of excitement. Yeah, that's powerful. There's a lot of that. It sounds like you love and then it's like in sync with your personality. And I remember a funny side story for our listeners that hopefully it's okay for you to share. If not, we'll cut it out. Was I remember you saying before you made the move out of Hydroplast, remember you saying that the one thing that Anne, your wife, had asked you not to do was to try to run her company. <laughs> right? Because she also has her own company. And she was, do what you need to do, honey, but you're not going to run my company. Is that it? Yeah, no, my poor wife, because after eight years of just working in Hydroflask and being busy and traveling and whatnot, now I'm home. Now we're quarantining. Now she's trying to run her business from home and I'm home. So of course, I'm home all the time. I have all sorts of suggestions <laughs> and opportunities for her business. And so you can imagine the first, when they start lifting quarantine, a friend of mine reached out and said, hey, there's this fishing lodge in Idaho and these group bailed because you know they don't want to travel there. Do you want to go? And I show it to my wife and Annie goes, you should go. <laughs> it looks really expensive. It looks spendy. She goes, you've earned it. You deserve it. You should go. It's so obvious to see through that, right? She's just get out of here. Please. Get out of here. I need a break <laughs> from you. It's just like this. Away. Really hard. No, and she's doing great. Her business is called Stickerlicious and she's doing so great cool. with her business. And when she needs my help, it's usually come to a trade show, help. Don't get in the way, but just be helpful. Set up the booth and all those kind of things. And I, I enjoyed being her slave a little bit too. Oh, I love it. Getting the hub product. Stickerlicious is very cool. You guys need to check it out if you haven't already. And I think it's just fascinating because you are also, I know you to be a man of service. I think you, you helped launch the outdoor products program here at OSU, Oregon. What's you, right? Is that OSU? Yeah, Oregon State University. The Cascades campus here in Bend, right? Yeah. And then your work with Camber and other boards. And I think it's just such a reminder for me about how a mind, an active mind wants to stay active and purposeful in what you're doing, which is exciting. And then of course, this Puffin opportunity came along, which I'm sure that they were super grateful that you were available at that time. But I'm also struck with May, something you and I have talked a lot about, and I'm sure that not, a number of our listeners can relate to, which is what does happen in a partnership, in a marriage or in a significant partnership when you're both running businesses or when one of you has a big change, a retirement, or like in your case, May, your partner left his career many years as an engineer to start up his own craft jewelry business, beautiful as a beautiful silversmith. And it changes everything. And I know Jim and I both were like, wait a second, we've gone from traveling all the time to we're 10 feet apart every day, all day long. It just, those changes are significant in sort of two career households. So I appreciate that, that side of it too. Very interesting. Yeah, I feel like we should have Anne on here right now also. Totally. Like, also get her. Yeah, yeah. Put her in the room right now. Because I'm also just proud of her foresight. Of, you are a treasure. You're a wonder. Stay out of it. I think sometimes those boundaries are so hard to hold, especially with someone who their highest and best actually is running a company. And Anne's no, not today. That's a good lesson for me. And she's the scrappy entrepreneur. She's got a million ideas going on. And I don't have any of those muscles or really mm. that skill set. So it's much mm. more kind of coming into something that's already off the ground and trying to figure out how to get to that next level and start to build a team and get a more complicated business all rowing together. So yeah, most of the time she just looks at my advice, goes, uh-huh, thanks for sharing. And it just goes back to doing it the right <laughs> way, her way. She's gracious in that regard. 
it's okay to not take every piece of advice. I think sometimes we get wrapped into listening to the people that we want as mentors or our partners, and we think we have to take everything because they're successful or whatever. And I love this story that we didn't actually mean to run into that you can take the things that are useful for you. And I'm sitting here as a millennial, I'm like, whew. It can be easy to think that if you don't do everything, you're doing it all wrong. Quick aside on that, because I learned that earlier in my career hard way too. And I get the questions now. So you have kind of a young leadership team and you have all these impressive board members that have all these opinions. And the question is always, should we just go do that? Because that person said that would be a good idea. And I was like, well, if we think it's a good idea, then we do it. If we don't think it's a good idea, then we don't do it. Because... I remember we worked for this tech company and one of our board members, which is brilliant guy. He was like the youngest vice president at Texas Instruments. I think he was knighted. He was British. Save ICL, like their IBM. And he kept it for big. <laughs> he sold it to Fujitsu. Just genius. And so it was internet years, all these crazy business models. He always had these great ideas. But if we came to a board meeting and said, oh, Rob, we tried that idea. Your idea? It didn't work. He goes, that's a dumb idea. Why'd you do that? Or if we, we, we didn't do it, like we should have done it. So it came back to, it was always on us. That's all we have to own it. And if we think it's a good idea, then that's great. And they're there, they're smart, they have ideas. Sometimes they're 100% right. They see things that we don't. And so we just have to be open-minded, but we have to decide, is that the advice that we fully own and believe in and we own it? That's it. And we give credit if it works out great, but we own the consequences. That's that whole thing about advice, sticking to your guns and, and all those kind of things too. I love that. I love that. It's something we talk about at Momentum a lot because we've, especially post-COVID, we've done so many experiments. You know, we've, we've had to test lots of things in terms of how the business has pivoted as a result of COVID. And I would say, I don't know what our percentage rate is of our experiments made. A lot of them work and some of them don't work. And we've also, we also get a lot of advice from people that we seek out, that we pay for their advice, as well as people that we, whose opinions matter, including our respective spouses and everything else. And it's a powerful statement what you're saying. To, and it's a learning, I think, even for me at this age and stage to say, yeah, that sounds like a really good recommendation from that person that I respect or that group that I respect. And what would that mean to me to run an experiment on that? Or what does that mean to me and the team? Because that's the other piece for me as a CEO of a small organization is to turn to the wisdom of the team to make sure we're looking at it from a variety of angles. Just like you said, to be able to say, can we own this? You know, like an example for me, one of the decisions we debated for a long time, May, was about coming off social media for our marketing. So we were mostly pretty active on Instagram. We were on LinkedIn as well, not much on Facebook, but we debated that decision for a long time. We got advice in a bunch of different directions, and we finally did decide in January of 2023 to come off Instagram for the business completely. We are still on LinkedIn, but we had a lot of conversations about it as a team. And I think the evolution was like, are we, what is it we want to own? What are our values? How do our values, are they being, are they, do they match what we're doing right now in terms of Instagram? And it wasn't even about whether Instagram is good or bad or what your opinion is about social media. It was about what does this mean to us and what do we want to do with this business? And we made the decision and I, I feel grounded in that decision, but I definitely would not have wanted to make that decision alone without the advice, but also without the input from the team and also to sit with it for a while to be like, is this really Right. It takes a while to discern the right move. Yeah, it's more about the conversations, isn't it? And I kind of the question behind the question and what's important in business. Uh, will you tell us about a time in your career where you knew that you were making one choice and it was going to change your life, your career, whatever was happening in that moment? And if you chose the other one, it would be wildly different. Somewhere, some moment where that was like vividly clear for you. Yeah, like a crossroads kind of moment, a fork in the road. Yeah, yeah. I just remember... Uh, so it goes back a long time. It was the 1990. Man, I was applying to business school and I was using the throw the spaghetti on the wall. Let's see who would let me in. My, my undergrad GPA wasn't as awesome as they would have wanted it to be is what I was thinking. <laughs> I said, the other things were pretty good. But so it came down to I got into two schools and I was already living on the beach in Southern California. And one of the schools was UCLA. It was a great school, great business school. And I, I could just, that would be so easy. And then the other one was Chicago. And I'd never lived outside of the West Coast. I'd never, to me, that was back East. It was funny to get to Chicago and all the people from the East Coast. Like, this is not back East. Nevada is East, right? It's just, and then you've got realize, I better keep my mouth shut. I sound really ignorant. I sound really ignorant to a lot of my classmates. Just keep my mouth but I didn't know anybody at that school. I'd never been there. The first time I set eyes on Chicago, I was moving. 
I was landed, I was in a cab, I was heading to the campus. And that was like, I, but I, I just had this kind of sense, like I, I need to see different things, experience different things, take some risks, not get out of the familiar, try something different. And lo and behold, like all these years later, it was through some of my now good friends and classmates that I met the person that bought out the founders of Hydroflask and hired me into Hydroflask and hired me, also invested in Puff and Drinkware and hired me into to Puff and Drinkware. Mm-hmm. It was a good friend, Jim Collins. Yeah. How would my life have been different if I stayed on the familiar path, which would have been really easy. Every time you look at the sunset of the beach, it's just, hey, you this is cold. It's cold in Chicago. Oh this is God, not something I was used to. But I, now I can live in Bend, Oregon and think it's okay because I've been <laughs> for a couple of years and dealt with winners there. So strange. I have no idea what life would have been like on another path, but here it is. So that's, a, that's such an adventurous decision. And it makes me think, May, a little bit about your project in school as well when you went to Detroit. Speak yeah. about that for a bit. Because I'm thinking about both of you in those stories and like the sliding door moments or the moments when we pick one path versus another and how it changes everything. So talk about that for a minute. I think it's very similar, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's more, I think it's the clarity of, I just felt like if I didn't choose the thing that was nerve wracking, I'd be making the wrong choice. And it was like, am I going to be able to live with making the wrong choice? Maybe. Am I going to be able to justify that? Probably. But do I want to do that? Not really. It reminds me more of going to art school. I really thought I was going to go to med school. I thought I was like Mm -hmm. always a jock, always going to med school, always going to be an orthopedic surgeon, going to do whatever those things were that I had set for myself. And then as soon as the other track was laid in front of me, I too went sight unseen to somewhere. Mm -hmm. And it Yeah, I just remember crying the first day I got to art school because I was like, wow, I unlocked a room I didn't even know was here. And it's like everything in here fits me. That was a wild. Yeah. And I wouldn't be in this room specifically if I hadn't made that choice way back then. Yeah. I I have lots of questions about this, Scott, but I'm wondering if there – is there a pattern in your life that you watched? Did you watch someone in your life make a choice like that? So that got embedded in you to be like, that is an okay thing to do? A little bit. Yeah. I had a good friend that went to, I went to school. We were all in school at Berkeley and he ended up going to medical school at Columbia and I would visit him. And uh, there he was back, back East, everything back. You can back So he was really back East and uh, it worked out fine for him. He met his wife and he's a good all around guy. So that was part of it. I can always end up back on the Western part of the United States, but when you're young, you should do these things. You should try different things. You should live in different places. I'm so grateful that I did that. Yeah. I think it's just, I agree with you. It's, there's times where it's like, this is easy. This would be hard. Don't always take the easy. Your, can your sense tells you this is the right thing. It's not going to be easy, but it's the right thing. Yeah. And it can be not easy for a while. Like as you guys were talking, I was thinking about what's one of mine, right? And one of mine for sure was leaving my career as a wilderness guide and therapist and jumping into corporate America because A, I felt like an imposter there. B, I judged those people. Like I thought anyone who worked for a corporation was probably a really horrible person in my mind because I had come from like a, I was very passionate about social services and about the wilderness and nature. And I literally traded in my polypropylene for what we wore back then, which was like suits with shoulder pads. And it was really scary. And my palms were really sweaty, partly because I thought I would be a misfit there and that I wouldn't succeed, but also because I didn't think highly of other people that had made that decision. And lo and behold, like you said, May, when you got to art school and you were like, wait, all of this fits, even though it's really a stretch. That's how I felt. I was like, wow, these people are really interesting. They're not bad people. They're just people just like me. They're interesting. They're complex. They are trying to do good things in the world. And so my judgment like quickly went away and I took a little longer to feel not so much like an imposter, but it changed the whole trajectory of my career. And it would have been very easy not to make that choice. So there's just something about noticing when our palms are sweaty and saying, all right, that's, I'm going to try that. You can reverse it if it doesn't work out, but it's hard to do in the moment. Scott, this is a good segue into the specialty that I'm just going to, those are my words, not yours, Scott, but the specialty that you have of this startup world, because I think there is some romance, you know what I'm saying, about (laughs) startups and about being in that world and that everything is about risk taking And that, like, I've watched the movies. I get it. Like, you got to take big risks and get big rewards. And then everybody's really proud of you. And then look, now you get to be on seven boards and everybody asks you for advice. Like, 
the timeline shortens so much into looking like risks equal success. Bo, you tell us like what is happening and what it's actually like in startup world, but will you give us the will you give us the real real? Yeah, for sure. I May mean, I think you were on the right path there with the romantic exorcism. Is that the word? <laughs> romantic exorcism? Because it is a little bit of that. It's a little bit like a romantic. It's very romantic. And then it's like an exorcism. <laughs> That's a new word made up right here. Yeah, that's this new thing. No, especially right now, startups are, God bless entrepreneurs, right? They just see these opportunities and they just don't, yeah, just like, why not? Let's just do it. We talk about what's easy and they just just have these gifts. But then you get to a certain place where you got to grow it and scale it and hire people. And it is really hard. Right now, marketplaces are tough. Retailers are struggling to get through. Consumers are, are we in a recession? Are we not? Like we're just inflation. Where are we spending our money? Should we be saving more? So it's just not an easy time. And then you have coming out of the pandemic, the relationship between employers and employees has totally changed. All of us have had to ask a question like, hey, what's important to me? And do I want to sit on a, in a car on a bridge for 90 minutes going to this job and no, maybe not. And so I think there's so many things to, to navigate in all of that, let alone fundraising. It's just a tough time to raise money too. So if you're in the world of startups, you have to be scrappy, whatever it takes, all hands on deck. How do we work together? You have to be really that big picture focus. What is our mission? Similar to what you guys talked about is just, hey, should we do this with social media? Who are we? What are we? What are our values? What's important? Where are we wasting our time? Where are we not? All those conversations are important. You've got to be really focused on the people and who knows how long these headwinds last, who knows when it becomes easy. I'm on board of a company, it's just home fitness equipment. That market went straight up during COVID and it's like straight down since. And it's really hard to be a leader when you have a business like that. It just takes everything out of it, leaders and making sure leaders take care of themselves and each other. Cause if you run out and you have nothing left, you're not going to be a good leader. Yeah. I think there's lots of challenges and lots of need for good leadership and good startups. Cause a lot of times in down markets, that's when the great things happen. That's when yeah. people got let go and they joined a startup and it became the next big thing. There's that optimism that from that, but man, it's not an easy environment out there right now. So interesting. There's three things that like just totally stuck with me as you were talking. One is like the word scrappy. I was talking about this with one of our partners who's on the faculty in the Leading People Program, Levada English, because she was asking me about entrepreneurship. She does a piece, she has a program that supports women in particular who are looking to shift their corporate jobs and move into entrepreneurship. And my first words back to her was like, they need to be ready that it's, it's, it's tough. Like it's, a, and I think there is some romanticism, exorcism, romanticizing like the flexibility and the, and I can, I can do, I have this idea. It seems easy at the beginning, but experienced entrepreneurs like yourself, Scott, know that actually there's so much inner strength and fortitude that's required. The second thing you said that just jumped right at me is that the power of your team is so important. Who's going to be on the boat with you or in the boat with you to advocate and move that company forward or that idea forward is so important. And we know that globally we have a loneliness epidemic in the world at large right now anyway, but I think for entrepreneurs in many cases, that's even even worse because they are, the founders in particular suffer, I think sometimes from feeling like it's all on them, which in those early stages in particular is extremely stressful. I think you're right. And I think of that quote from Dwight Eisenhower, plans are worthless, but planning is everything. And it's, it really is about that. It's just, what is important? Where are we going? How do we work through all the inevitable changes that come at us? And what do we do? And I think at the top, you really need those. That's where I think a good board or advisors or ad hoc advisory board or a coach. I don't know, Mo, you, you serve in that capacity for Hydroflask Leadership Team and myself. Man, you do need someone to talk to. Yeah, you have you do it. It's stuff. It's not easy to process all the things that, that you have to process. Yeah, I think it's making sure. And then obviously, are you sleeping? Are you exercising? Are you eating well? Just the things that we sometimes overlook. Uh, I just remember another coach earlier on. I was like, "Well, just talk about this. This frustrates me. This frustrates me." Ah. He's like, "Are you breathing?" I'm like, "Yeah, I breathe all the time." No, oh, not just breathing. Are you consciously doing this breath work? I'm like, "What are you talking about?" What are you talking about? You also get to learn about somebody's take a deep breath. Like how we're wired as humans and how sometimes that we if we don't manage how we interact and how we react, 
man, we can make things worse for ourselves. So there's a lot to, we should accept all the help we can get. Don't fail alone. Look for ways you can help. But yeah, when you're at the top of a company, sometimes that's outside your organization or elsewhere where you can be helpful. And then a lot of times things more clearly for others than, than you do for yourself. It always seems mm-hmm. to be true, right? So yeah, there's a lot there to work on, but yeah, I think that's just a key trap you fall into as leaders. We have to be superheroes, we have to be perfect, we have to be robotic, we have to have endless energy. We always have to have the answer. That isn't possible and it isn't really true either. No, it's not. It's something I see. It's interesting, Scott, because I've thought often since our work together in a direct coaching relationship ended, when I talk with clients, especially middle managers or middle managers or like senior middle leaders, like directors and VPs, when I talk with them about self-care, like one of the leaders whose faces comes to mind for me is you, because I've seen you as someone who has prioritized your own well-being as something that's important. Not that you're like perfectly balanced all the time or anything like that, but it seems like that's been important to you. We were we had another guest on recently, Dr. Kanika Sims, who was talking about, she speaks about preserving well-being in particular for physicians which is one of the fields where we're seeing, of course, the highest amount of burnout and churn. And she's just passionate about how important this is and how difficult it is even for physicians to do it. So I'm curious for our listeners, as you think back on your career and you look even at the stage you're in right now, like was retired, now back out and very active professionally, even though you've had a taste of that retirement life, what have been the most important levers for you in terms of keeping yourself well amidst the challenges of being a senior leader in an organization. Yeah, it's really, it's funny when you look back, this was a problem and this was a problem, all these things in your career is you're near the top or at the top. And then you there's that moment where you realize the common denominator in all those was you. Like you were the one <laughs> that was always there at the problem. And then you start to realize you are contributing to the problem. Mm-hmm. It's not, you are the problem. It's just those things and how mm-hmm. there's so much learning around being human and being a leader and how we're wired differently. It's so easy to surround yourself with people just like you. This is great. I love all these people, but we go right off the cliff together. <laughs> the things. And so the people that are different see what's different, and but they're so hard to work with and you can easily trigger them. It's easy to trigger So you have to learn, you just understand that. It's not personal. They're not trying to do this. And you, we want that diversity. We want that difference. We learn how to build these bridges. And yeah, I think the coaching, the awareness, the feedback, the, the myth of the perfect leader is invincible and has it all dialed instead of, hey, I'm flawed. I have a problem with this. I get, if I'm not sleeping and I'm irritable, like and I'm working out, like I'm going to get grumpy. And you're going to see that. It's not very inspiring. And I need to manage that. I need to own my impact on the people that I'm working with and and then also forgive them when they're not perfect and teach them some of the things that I've had to learn the hard way. It's funny, I just had people that showed up late and I was like, oh, you're this empowered leader and this great leader. You missed the bad years. You got lucky. You got here when I figured some of this stuff out and I'm far from perfect. I still have the bad days, but it's fun now at Puffin. It's like we have this leadership team. It's not easy to scale a brand. There's things that are going to go wrong. There's going to be the different frustration. If you're in sales and we've had problems getting products to market, you're getting beaten up. You're getting beaten up and you feel put out there. And so you turn around, you look at your colleagues and they're having a bad day. You might let them have it. And as far as they know, they have no idea where this came from. You just, yeah. you just hit them over the head with a telephone pole. They have no idea why you did that. And if they're, if we don't talk this stuff through, man, that's how, big chasm start in organizations. I'm not going to bat for that function. Why do I want to make them look? Mm-hmm. No, but we're a team, like we win together. And sometimes we have bad days and we need to maybe apologize and share more about our realities and sign up to work together and win together. It's just this, this human condition that we have to navigate. I'm telling you guys that, right? This is the business. Well, let me just say for our listeners, like you heard it from the horse's mouth, like Scott <laughs> Allen says right here, right now, I too am flawed. And I think that's one of the things that is the hardest for us as leaders, especially as founders and as heads of entity to, to stand in and to say, and still be in grounded confidence. Like I hear you say that. And I also see. I have to say it because you said you're going to have my wife on it. So I want to hear that. I know she's going to bring it up. So I better bring it up. Right? It's true for all of us. And I think when you just, even when you say it, it's like really, it gives us all some spaciousness. 
it gives, and I've seen you do this, Donna, when you've said that I've seen it have an impact on your vice presidents who can now take in a little bit more air and be like, all right, so my imperfection, my mistake, my thing that I did actually now is survivable and I can get the support that I need to recover or repair, which is something we talk a lot about. And that's the nature of the human experiment, right? Is that we are learning as we go. So I think it's, it seems like it's not that huge, but I actually think it is pretty huge in terms of in particular, what the organizations of the future really need. And it doesn't mean we don't also need leaders who are confident and strong and decisive and can make hard decisions and be logical. We need that too. It's not all the flaws now become central. It's just that we acknowledge their existence in a way that allows us to recover and repair more quickly, which I think is really good for organizations organizations. Isn't it refreshing to hear a leader like Scott talk about leadership and culture like this? Phew, we agree. You can probably hear the comfort and excitement in our voices. That's because we've seen and supported Scott in the culture journey that he's taken with several companies during that critical period of fast growth to transaction. If you're ready to turn the spotlight on to your company culture, email us at info at momentum.com, that's M-O-E-M-E-N-T-U-M.com, to ask about our new free assessment, the Index for Human Thriving, and our core culture product, The Inside Job. We can definitely help. Back to the show. Yeah, it's really that self-awareness and communication. And the more recent example is just here at Puff and Drink, where it's the, the interim CEO. So that, that had an end date. And they're pretty late in the search process to bring someone in. And so I thought about that and we were going through something around what are we each doing to be a better leader? And it's like, okay, I learned from a former advisory board member, board member, when we do that stuff as a CEO, you have to go first. You have to demonstrate vulnerability if you want your team to do that. Otherwise they'll say, oh, I, yeah, I know my, I work too hard. That's my flaw. I work too hard. I generate too much impact for the company. It's like that kind of stuff. It's like, that's not what we're talking about. So I was able to look at this circumstance and said, if I'm not careful, I could really push this company too hard because I want it to be all dialed by the time the next person comes. Because if I let my kind of ego drive the bus, my ego would want, it's a reflection on me if it's not all dialed. In a yeah. company at this size and stage and where it was surviving COVID, thinly capitalized, God bless them. I mean, they were super scrappy, resourceful, landed the plane out of gas, basically. Mm-hmm. They were able to pull it up. It's not really realistic, nor is it even the right thing to maybe push to make this thing. So I said, I told them, I said, this is probably where I'm going to need to manage myself. And you guys can call me on this if you see it. If I'm pushing too hard, let me know. And they're like, wow, okay. That's something that's interesting. Now let's all share like what our issues are, what our challenges are, so that we can understand each other better as people. Yeah, not far from perfect, but just can start to see problems coming. It's like, well, I got to make sure I'm managing myself in this situation. Yeah, I'm struck with how that same characteristic for you in that instance with Puffin in your interim CEO role is also a strength. And it's something that I've been thinking a lot about lately too, which is that it, and May, you and I talked about a little bit in our one-on-one last week, like our greatest strengths also when we over-depend on them can be a weakness. So that you're talking about that drive you have, that desire to leave for your successor, leave everything in good hands. That's a strength, like we would want that. But if that's the only thing that's showing up, then it can squeeze out other important dimensions of how you're leading the company right now. So I think that's, that. That does also take some sweaty palms to say, oh, hang on, this thing I'm really good at also can get me in trouble if it's the only tool I have in the shed. So so many things I'm reminded of too, right? We have a lot of young families. So we have like half the leaders team has elementary school aged children, Mm. if not younger. And they're trying to be parents and be at this startup. So I know what that's, I tease them. I'm like, I know what it's like to feel like you're failing in all the important areas of your life simultaneously. That's what it feels like. You just, there's not enough time today to do all this stuff and do it the, the level you want to do it. So there's that. There's a few that are, have aging parents that are going through some things and there's others that have health. It seems like everybody has something hard going on in their life. It's not only about work. It's not only about what we're doing together. It's like, How are you doing holding up with what else is happening in your life? Mm -hmm. Do we care about each other only to the extent that person's delivering something I need 
to be successful or do we care about each other as a human being that's in maybe for a hard three, four, five, six years, who knows, wherever Huffington goes, it won't be easy. Yeah, there's just a lot of things that we're trying to bring to the table. I said, this is what teamwork looks like. Not, we only care about each other to the extent we deliver things at work, but yeah. like we actually try to cover for each other when we have tough things going on. We try to look after each other, et cetera. So yeah, I mean, it's just, what is the definition of teamwork? What is the definition of good leadership? It's really got to be more human centric, the whole human, not just you show up at work, I don't give a crap about the rest of your stuff, but more, wow, you seem like you have a lot going on. Can I help you? Are you okay? Et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, mm -hmm. things we're learning how to do in the work world that certainly weren't, you used to hide that stuff. You used to be like, do not let that stuff out because it makes you vulnerable. You can get let go because you have too much crap going on in your life. Who didn't have stuff going in their life, really? So <laughs> right, we can bring our full selves to work is the idea and fit in and be seen, valued, heard, and supported. And let's do that. And because there's times where I need to be supported. There's times I'm one, I don't and I can give more. So that's teamwork. So things we're working on right now. Oh, I love it. And there's so, I've been struck with another guest gave us his term, Cy Wakeman introduced his term to us, I guess it was last week, which was the language of impermanence. And my husband, and I just watched the last episode of Ted Lasso. You guys are fans probably, right? Oh. And I was so struck, I'm so struck about the, about what happens in the last episode, which I will not say on the podcast because it would be a spoiler alert. Yeah, but careful really with your spoilers over there. I know, but I just think it's like, it left me with this feeling of everything changes, right? So what you're speaking about around the human centeredness is also about this business as we know it is going to shift. It's not going to be, Puff and Vigor is not going to be exactly as it is today forever. It's going to evolve. And I think that's true for every organization, even the big mega ones, but certainly for the smaller ones, that there's a dynamism. But what doesn't change is the fact that we have human beings working in the system who bring their talents to the fold around what we're trying to get done. And so that, so caring for that sort of really also helps us ride that impermanence that we know is a given, particularly in business, but really in every organization, even organizations that aren't necessarily traditional for-profit businesses. Gonna be, there's gonna be mergers, there's gonna be acquisitions. Some businesses will go out of business. Some will trade out, but leaders will leave. And, and it's just powerful, I think, to remember that as well. Sometimes I feel like people have different forms of the internet sometimes, because I feel like there are still residual patterns out there about no, we cannot bring those things to work, or that's so great that y'all want to talk about your hard stuff, but like, also, I need to know everything because I'm an entrepreneur and this is my idea. And also, I'm owning this. So, I like, can show no weakness to the board or have to take every piece of advice. Like, whatever that heroic story is that we have and that we've been socialized for, it feels so like Mo and I have these conversations all the time, obviously, but it is very relieving to hear not only somebody who does not have these conversations with us every day, but also a male voice say these things out loud that it's no, the opposite of weakness is not actually tenderness or showing that you have a flaw does not mean that you are not confident. Right. I think we need to reassess those spectrums a little because I think they've gotten so black and white. You either are good at it or you're not good at it. So I'm just really thankful, Scott, to even just hear like the quiet thing said loud again, and especially coming from a male voice, because it can get really bleak out here when everything's like, yeah, that's really sweet. <laughs> no, it's not really sweet. The payoff is huge. The return on investment on being tender and vulnerable and showing up as a human and seeing the people that you work with, not just as workers, is actually good business. Yeah. And we say that over and over again, but thank you for just saying it. Yeah, and I get the challenge for leaders that subscribe to that and see the benefits of that and then have to manage upwards to a board or maybe they're running a business within a big public company and they have to present to the board. That isn't widely accepted. And to come across with, you certainly don't want the message, hey, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just, let me showcase my flaws and my just like red flag. So there, there's, yeah, you sometimes you have to put a hat on, hey, things are hard and we know that and we, Here's setbacks we're seeing. So we're not hiding things, but here's our plan. And here's what we're going to do. And here's our contingencies. Okay, that's kind of what a board's, they're there to pressure test and they're there to stick their nose in and ideally keep their hands off unless they actually have to. And you try not to give them lots of reasons that they have to. But it comes to your people. Yeah, it's not that autonomous, robotic 
Terminator type leader that it's not who people want to work for. It's, it's okay to be human. It's okay to be flawed. And just tell you all the millions of studies that show that vulnerable leaders are the ones that people feel are authentic and they want to follow. Yeah, I think that's so powerful. And May, I love that you called out the what it feels like to hear from a leader like Scott, and particularly in a masculine voice, to hear from a man about the valuing of those pieces. And I've been thinking a lot lately about how, I think you both probably heard me say that until, my, one of my beliefs is that until men, for example, are seen as competent, loving caregivers of children and the elderly, we won't have equity at work in terms of like wage equity, because they go together. And so I think part of what I'm really aware of, and I see it in so many of our clients and colleagues that we work with, is that many people who identify as men, who are raised as young boys and men, are actually not given they're not choosing to be binary in the way they show up, like to be more machine-like or to not be emotional. They're not usually choosing that. They're trained that way mm -hmm. by our society. And they're not given the room for their full humanity in some cases. I'm not saying it only happens to men. It happens to women too. And all the other dimensions of gender identity that are in between. I, I often talk about how I want to like ungender leadership. Because if we get ungender leadership, we would have to get into the masculine, feminine binary. But one of the things I hear a lot in the work I do is, and it's not as common now, but when I was earlier in my career, that was that the work I represented was often seen as feminine or soft, being human-centered, et cetera. And what I'm grateful right now for in the world of business is that we have such good data that is evidence of the contrary, like you're speaking about, Scott. And so what I'm really hungry for, though, is I'm hungry for more normalizing of leaders who look more like Scott Allen than they do May Rats, who can say, actually, I want to learn those skills. Even if I wasn't taught them as a young boy, I want to learn that. I want to be able to tap into that full spectrum of my humanity. We see research about women, for example, who suffer disproportionately from imposter syndrome, who have had to learn to overcome enculturation around women aren't assertive. You know, mm -hmm. they don't speak up. Women have had to learn how to be different than the way they were raised as little girls about being quiet, be seen and not heard, that kind of thing in order to lead well. So I think the same is true for male leaders right now around, yeah, be decisive, be confident, be get the numbers to have your logic and analysis. Yes, those are all perhaps more masculine traits that matter, but also you don't have to hide, squelch or sit on top of and bury the parts of you that have empathy that can connect well with humans, that can be tender, as you're saying, maybe, because those are parts of you too. And I think sometimes it's easy, at least in the work we do, to act like people are being bad or that they're a faulty character because mm -hmm. they're doing what they've been taught to do yeah. um, by our society. And to me, it's like an unlearning, almost a renaissance of saying, yeah, and look now, look how wonderful it is that we can have more full spectrum behaviors in the human dynamic across the gender binary. But boy, it can feel insecure. I was telling May about, I got to meet a guy, Tony Bond, who's a senior executive with Great Places to Work. And he mentioned, when I was in Portugal recently, and he mentioned this story he had, which was that he was talking about the top 10 great places to work in their research. And that organization has been really powerful in terms of some of the data they brought forward around human-centric workplaces. And at the end of his talk, he said he was giving a keynote and this guy came up to him who was a CEO of a 30,000 person company. And he said, Tony, I believe in everything you're saying. I, it makes sense. Those four things you say people need, which by the way, were respect, equity, being listened to and having fun <laughs> at work. Mm -hmm. And he said, I believe in all that. And then he paused and he said, but no one taught me how to do it. So I suck at it. So mm -hmm. what I'd like for you is to tell me how to do that. Help me learn how to do that because I can see that's valuable. But when I went to MBA school, <laughs> that is not what they taught me. And yeah. so I feel inadequate, insecure, not confident and not competent in those skills. So instead, I do these other things, which I feel pretty confident in. And I thought that was such a powerful story from Tony around having empathy for that leader. What Tony shared was that he said, and I bet I'm a drop in the bucket of all the people that were just listening to you. Because I bet most of the people who look like me feel the same way. <laughs> so that, that's powerful for me around let's have empathy for leaders who are still learning how to tap into those parts of themselves. Yeah. No, it reminds me, obviously, coming out of business school, all the things around financial models, strategy, managerial account. Yeah, it's like, how do you build a car? But then you need to put an engine in it, which is really the people, you know? And mm -hmm. so, yeah, you learn those things. And 
what was accepted, what was normal 30 years ago, the world's changed for the better in so many ways. But mm-hmm. it was funny after, uh, during my quarantine in place, bored type of <laughs> thing, I, I got a call from someone who's like, oh, I'm a portfolio company of the same investor that invested in Puffin and brought me to Hydroflask. Jim told me to call you and talk about values. I guess we're not doing enough to articulate our values and work on our culture. And I'm like, Jim told you to call me? He goes, yeah, <laughs> private equity investor. So I go, sure, I'll do that call. So we had a nice chat. And then I reached out to Jim. I said, wow, you need to pay me more hush money. I'm going to tell all your New York private <laughs> equity friends that you're running around telling them they need to work on their values and culture. He goes, I know I thought it was a bunch of horse pucky, but I, I saw it. Hydroflask, it mattered. It really mattered mm-hmm. to build these authentic brands from the inside out that the, what consumers see and would expect to see is not like the Wizard of Oz and one guy back there pulling strings. It's totally not that. It's totally not authentic, right? And so we always had that as one of our guiding principles. Just are we that company? Are we those people? Are we doing the right things? Are we having fun together? Are we creating something special? Are we looking after each other, et cetera, et cetera? It wasn't always easy, but like we didn't lose the special sauce wasn't sacrificed to, to make numbers for the next month. It was always something that was top of mind. And I, again, I learned that from some of our advisors. That's how you build a brand. That's how you build it from kind of culture inside out, people centric. And it's so true. Mm-hmm. Well, it's awesome that Jim was able to make that transition too. And didn't notice no, that. no hush money. He was proudly just wear, waving the flag of it needs to be there. And it's, it is that kind of Venn diagram. Like, do we have a strong capability and the right market fit and we can execute that? But then it's, are we not just sacrificing culture people to optimize really that, can we find that sweet spot? Because that's where the magic happens. You can create something special. You can invest back in people and culture. You have the people and culture just create the great special results. It just becomes this flywheel. Uh, and it's a lot of fun. It doesn't feel like work. It feels like a calling. It feels like mm. a special thing that you're creating with people. A very kind of Daniel Pink kind of flow state drive kind of thing. And that's what you'd hope for. You'd hope work would look more like that, not less like that. Ah, this is a, what a great segue. Will you tell us, Scott, what you're excited and optimistic about for like your kids and my kid and Mo's kid to go to work and like what it would be like? And then what else are you worried about? Yeah, I'm excited that I see it in my daughter's 20, about 26. My son's about to turn 23. And especially my daughter, she will not work for jerks. <laughs> yes. She won't work for jerks. And I, I didn't get the memo. That was an option. We were taught, you just, you look up the corporate ladder and probably is a good chance there's kind of someone who's mean up there. And just that's probably the way that they were, it's, it's like drill sergeant, I don't know, coach. It wasn't coach in the way of supporting, not a Ted Lasso coach, more of a get dirty and you're worthless yelling at you, coach. They choose out. They opt out. I'm not going to work for someone that's soulless and just a jerk. And so I like that. I think it makes leaders better leaders. It opens up these conversations of how do we engage that generation? And then what scares me is just there's so many challenges that we're facing simultaneously. We're so divided as a country, the threat of war with other superpowers, the recession, the state of our planet. I'm optimistic about innovation. I'm optimistic about their drive for kind of justice and what seems fair. And just, yeah, the way that they see the world, I think we could learn from some of that as as leaders and be better leaders and maybe work with them to clean up some of the mess that we may have made here. I love it. She won't work for jerks. I want her on the podcast too. And I just want to say, again, like my constant advertisement for the jerks out there, right? Because I... I've been a jerk. Like what I, and I think what I mean by that is like any of us can be a leader who actually suppresses the greatness of our team because of our own pressures, because of our own stressors or the parts of ourselves that we don't know that we're not paying attention to. So I think it's not about demonizing. Some people are just like naturally better than others. I think for me, it's like actually anybody can be the kind of leader we're talking about, but we've got to be willing to notice where it is that we're showing up for an employee like your daughter or my children or Crosley when she enters the workforce to say, am I willing to do the inner work and the partnership work that's necessary for this employee to feel like they really want to work for me and that they want to come back tomorrow? 
am I willing to do that work? And to me, that's the essence of leadership. And most of the work with me, I had this myth that, okay, I can be that leader for our rank and file. But if you're a vice president, you work for me, all bets are off. I can just let you have it. I can be that jerk because you're paid more and you got a title. That's, that was the deal in my mind. That's how I was treated. And it was like that conversation, are they not human? How does that help them feel great? How does it not teach them that's what should get patterned downward? How do you not undermine what you're really trying to do? Can you be that same leader? Because it'd be a joke. My team would come and say, oh yeah, everyone wants to work for you. I'm like, you didn't tell them the truth, did you? You didn't blow my cover, did you? It's like, I'm working on that stuff. And then, yeah. So now that's just everyone's human. It doesn't matter what their title is. It's like, none of us want to be working for a jerk we, and then we have our moments where it's just man the temptations i am so frustrated i can let you have it i would feel so great for about 10 seconds then i'll be apologizing for a month eating humble pie or i could just take a deep breath you know we can pick up the conversation and work through it or i can avoid the month of apologies and going backwards in a key relationship at work so it takes a long time to solve these things it takes a long time to get out of your own way these are things yeah. i figured out in my 50s as a leader Still figure this stuff out. I still have moments like, oh, that was a total mistake. But I'm going to have to go backwards. We're going to have a lot of conversations. This is just. Gotta repair from this one. Yeah. Hey, you want a flawed leader? Here he is. I'm here. I am demonstrating. Well, no one wants to work for a jerk, and also no one wants to be the jerk. I don't know that there is really someone who's. Yeah, I can't wait to just annihilate everyone I work with. <laughs> no. I, so, what is it that is in there? And I'm like, I'm in the camp of that everybody was socialized with some kind of like yucky thing that they've got to unwind a little and they trip over it when they're with other humans, but it's hard. It is hard, and, but also isn't it part of the process? For me, this is where I get energized, right? Because for me, it's a process of discovery of like, I can be, I can become better by becoming more of what it is that I strive to do. And here's the example I would share with you. I was talking to my eldest who just released a new album. It's a yeah. kid, an album for kids and families just had the release party at the Haven on Friday night. It's really, a, I think it's just awesome. But I connected with him yesterday and he's 30. He was having, he called it postpartum. I was like, how's it going? So I'm, I feel a little postpartum after releasing the album because I'm a little depressed. And then he paused and he said, I listened, I watched all the footage of the whole release party of all of the whole concert. And I, and then I just could see the look on his face. Like I watched all the footage and he didn't say this, but the dot was, and I saw all the flaws that the band and I made. And I was just struck with, yeah, that's how it is sometimes to be a people leader. And even, it, even to be a team member, even if you're not an official position of leadership, but you're trying to partner with people and you can almost, if you pause and look back at the recording, you can see the flaws. And it's like, how do we stand in? How, and I was just, I was proud of him for noticing. He was like, and I saw all the flaws and I had a moment of shame, a moment of unworthiness. Oh man, I put all this energy into this album. And then now I see all the flaws. But then to be able to recover from that, to get recentered around, and he basically said, and now I'm a little, I'm a little bit beyond that. And I'm looking forward to what happens next and what we can do differently next time. Yeah. what we can do differently next time. And I just could relate so much to that feeling of, ah, oh, I didn't do it as well as I would have liked our own inner perfectionist. And then to be able to say, and it's good enough the way it was. And what is it I might want to tweak for the future? Because that, when we let it, that can be enlivening rather yeah. than demoralizing. And it can make us bigger in our world, more capable, not less, but it definitely takes the same kind of open-heartedness that we've been talking about, I think, all the way along. And I hope for that for as, as parents and as auntie to young people today. And I look at little Crosley May and our colleague has a nine-month-old and I think about where those young people will go to work. And I think how good it could be if we get this right for them and how their talents could be so embraced by organizations of the future if we really do make some of the changes we're talking about. So mm -hmm. that's my hope. <laughs> Scott, who's inspiring you lately? Please. Yeah, T Ted Lasso, because I was a big fan <laughs> of the show. And then yes. the whole story about one of the writers, right? Brett Goldstein. Yeah, I love him. Plays Roy Kent, right? And the oh. whole story, and I'm sure we're going to botch the story, but he looks at the character, he goes, I think I have this character. I think that I can do this. And it, yeah. I guess he submitted a video as part of the audition and made him promise, this is really bad. No one's ever going to talk about this. You bury this and never, ever bring it up. I put it out there. And then, of course, they're like, he is that character. And, and he did such a great job. And then following up with Shrinking, just such a 
talk to guy, but the, the same thing. Like it's that, should I do this? Should I put it out there? Should I get the sweaty palms? And then what would that show be without his character? Is just a grunt and just his transformation as part of the team. The next couple, just it's such a great people story. And it, I, I love, especially during COVID, when facing all this challenges, right? As our country and our world to have a show like that just mm-hmm. makes you smile. I don't know how many Zoom calls there's on where there's the yellow believe side in the background. It just became this little, we can do this. We can be good people leaders. And especially his line, it wasn't about him. They're wildly successful, totally different team when he left, but it's not about him. That was beautiful. That was beautiful. One of the scenes that touched me so much in the last episode was when the, I'm forgetting the player's name that came out as gay yes. yeah. in the show, when he embraces his partner with a full body kiss yes. on the field. Yeah. I just, I was like, now that is powerful around, not just that moment of love between two people, but also the evolution of how he bravely was able to be who he was. Yeah, the team captain being angry, not for that, but why he didn't trust him and come to him sooner. Right, right. So much nuance. Yeah, yeah. they did a really good job with that show. Very true to what we all face. Oh, great. Scott, tell us how our audience can support you. And will you be specific? Yes, please go to puffindrinkware.com, W-E-A-R, drinkware. What is your drinkware? And check out all of our fun products. They are so cute. Yeah, no, we have these like fishing vests. We have new 4th of July ones. We have new robes that came out. So you can just think about a day at the spa. There's a big one that fits a champagne bottle. They're hilarious and they make great gifts. There's plenty more designs coming and styles coming. So there's somebody in your house. So if you want to be the life of the party, get a bunch of them, but show up at the campfire, hand them out. They're just a riot. They're just a riot. It's a great little company and yeah, just bring smiles to your day. Awesome. I have one more question, but that I'd be, I'd feel remiss if I didn't ask, but Scott, I have a pretty vivid memory of you and I in a room together with Adrian, mm-hmm. one of your colleagues from Hydroflask, and the three of us are mixed race. And you and I had a pretty tender interaction that has stuck with me for six years discussing what it felt like to be mixed race, especially mixed Asian. Uh, I'm wondering what it feels like for you now, six years later, and with all the things that we've seen go on, especially inside of our own culture, and what it feels like to lead across difference while also grappling and watching it happen. Yeah, what a great question. And I, I think it just was probably in the last couple months. You get these like questionnaires. Okay, what are this or that? Pick one. So th- this one was like, pick all that apply. Are you Caucasian? Are you Asian American? So I never knew what to pick. Like, what do you pick? And so it's like this or that. So I could pick more than one. It was the first time I could pick like that I'm my dad's Caucasian. My mom was born in China. So I can pick I'm this and this instead of I have to pick one because I remember being in kindergarten, I had to pick one to fit in and mm-hmm. I picked white and I could get away with it. And so I did the work with Canberra. So I understand this whole wanting to fit in and wanting to be seen and accepted. We're social creatures. This is, this is kind of part of the human experience. And when you're outside and excluded and not included, it's just horrible. There's that. And now with the tensions in the South China Sea, it's like, where is this going? Man, it brings up a lot of... Mm-hmm questions and concerns about how we're different as countries, how we're different as people, how we're really the same under all of that and how we navigate that. But I think the best leaders look at, play the long game and say, if I want to create a great company and I want to attract the broadest set of talent into my company and they just love it here and they just want to have a career here and be successful and be part of something special. And we work all, we do this all together. It's going to be a better company than if you're just narrow and excluding people and people show up for a paycheck, can't wait to get out. It's just like, how do you get to where you want to get to as a leader if you don't let the people plug in? And so I get the challenges and we're changing as a country. We're not that far away before Caucasian is the white is the minority. So what do we really want to keep shrinking our talent pool as leaders? Or do we want to think about who are the best people we want to bring in, no matter what they 
look like or believe or what have you, they line up and they're part of our team and part of something special. Let's go do some great things together. So yeah, mm-hmm. wouldn't it be great if we could all be proud of the different things that we are as humans and not feel like we have to hide that from each other. Mm-hmm. Thank you, Scott. Thanks for the time. My pleasure. All right, people. Have a great day. Thanks, you guys. So appreciate it. Good to see you both. Bye. Bye. Hey, thanks so much for listening. Steph Garcia Hernandez just left us the most amazing review. She said, quote, I love listening to May and Mo. They have a natural way of talking to one another about whatever the topic is. I've learned so much from Mo's perspective as an employer, and I've gained confidence as an employee. I share this podcast with all my friends and colleagues and would love to hear them do an episode on decoding job descriptions. Wow. Thanks, Steph, both for the awesome comments and for the great idea. We're definitely going to look into it. So if you're listening and you're enjoying Let's Make Work Human, please like, download, and leave a review on the podcast. It helps us reach more people for our work to build more workplaces that are good for people. Thank you so much.